wonderful singing this morning. Thank you to our praise team. Don't they do a great job week in and week out? Uh, we have been in a series looking at Isaiah in the New Testament. Um, as I have pointed out before, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament author in the New Testament. And so we've been looking at a number of these um, examples throughout the New Testament. Today we come to Acts chapter 8 where uh, they talk about, uh, or this episode where Philip um, meets with this Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch is actually reading from the book of Isaiah. And so we'll read some of that episode, take a look at it in detail over in Isaiah, and then jump back uh, to this um, episode with Philip and the Ethiopian. Um, Our text comes from Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading verses... (laughs) I did buy readers recently. Uh, I can't even see it. All right, so uh, verse 26 through 31. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, this episode between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Here we go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You may be seated. Um, As I was sharing, uh, this particular passage that the fellow is reading comes from Isaiah chapter 53. He actually quotes here in the book of Acts from Isaiah chapter 53. So what I thought would be fun for us to do is to go back to Isaiah 53, take a look at the content of what's there, and then perhaps be able to piece together the conversation that Philip and this Ethiopian had. The kind of Because Philip's trying to explain to him, hey, this is what's going on in this passage in Isaiah. So I thought maybe it'd be fun for us to do that as well. Remember that um, the Ethiopian is reading something uh, sometime after uh, the, re- the ascension of Jesus Christ in early B.C., uh, I'm sorry, early A.D. And so he's reading something, though, that was written over 700 years before. So Isaiah is talking about um, the servant Um, the Messiah, 700 years before the Messiah would ever show up, and would give details about his life. So that's what we're going to take a look at. So um, let's go ahead. Our first slide actually is a summary of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 lands in a section known as the fourth servant song. So this is actually a poetic verse. It's meant to be sung. People like Chris Tomlin have done that over the years, and Mac Powell and others. Um, and so I'm not going to try and sing it for you this morning. But nevertheless, this is, this is kind of an outline of this whole section of Scripture. It starts in chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, and then runs all the way through to the end of chapter 53. And so what you get there in this outline is the introduction. There are three verse sets. So every three verses you get kind of a new topic matter that's being presented. So you have the introduction, you have the rejection, you have the suffering of the Messiah or the servant of God. You have his death described, and then you have his triumphant, his victory. And so again, Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant. He's describing the messianic figure that's going to come, that's going to be the fulfillment of that third promise to Abraham all of those years before. So let's dive into this. Let's take a look at it together. We'll start in the introduction portion of this in chapter 52 and verse 14. 
It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So the first descriptor that Isaiah gives out of the gate of this messianic figure, this servant of the Lord that's going to come and, and wash away the sins of God's people, is that he will be tortured so badly that he will be uh, unrecognizable. Um, when the Roman soldiers would whip or scourge a prisoner, they, the whip that they would use was called a flagrum. I've got a picture of what perhaps might be that, what that might look like. Um, a flagrum was not what we think of like a typical cowboy whip. It's just a single strand or a braided together strand of, uh, that would leave one mark or like what Indiana Jones was running around on his hip. That, not that kind of a whip. It was this kind of whip. It was much shorter, had nine different tails, nine different leather tails. Uh, that was there. And so the broad, it would strike the back of the prisoner broadly, um, wounding them broadly, not leaving just a single mark. You can see there that the business end of this leather strap on that were heavy, probably lead weights, and they would help the soldier gain momentum as they would come up and over and land upon the back of the person, or if they were going sidearm to hit them and wrap around their ribs, and it would bring all the weight of that um, and causing even more infliction and more pain. Um, embedded in each of those lead weights were hooks. These would rip and tear the flesh from bone. By the time the prisoner experienced 39 of these lashes, the Romans referred to this as 40 minus 1, the prisoner was pretty well incapacitated. If they were ever able to recover from these wounds, it would take months and months and months of healing, lots of infections that would uh, set in. Many prisoners died in the aftermath of these beatings. I've got another picture for you here. It's a little bit grotesque. This is a snapshot from the movie The Passion of the Christ. I believe Isaiah's words were spot on when he wrote, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now the next subsection of this fourth servant song runs from chapter 53 verse 1 through verse 3. Let's take a look at verse 3 together. Remember Isaiah is describing the Lord's servant. He's describing this messianic figure who's going to come at some point off into the future. We know he came 700 or so years later. He writes of him in verse 3 that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. As with this first subsection, it's a little bit of a surprise here. It seems kind of odd that this Savior that God is sending to the world would experience rejection, that he would be despised by men. That seems un. un uh, unusual. We might think rather that he would be welcomed. We would rather think that this Messiah, this Messianic figure would be heralded, that everybody would be celebrating his arrival. This definitely would cause Isaiah's readers to pause and scratch their proverbial heads as they're thinking about what Isaiah's writing here. Are you sure that the Messianic figure is going to be despised? Well, actually, I can kind of see that when you think about the fact that he's going to come in and he's going to conquer the world. He's going to take over. He's going to be victorious. And so there's going to be people who are going to want to push back on that. But we the Jewish people, God's people, we would never reject him. I mean, the world may reject him, but we would never reject him. This Messiah will be our Savior. He'll be our conquering king. While the world may reject him, we will not. If only that had been the case. John reports in his gospel, John 12 and verse 37, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. He says in verse 38, 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this Savior of the world, as predicted by Isaiah, rather than being celebrated, rather than being welcomed, was actually despised and was rejected by his own people. Again, just as Isaiah had predicted. Um, moving forward to verse 4, it begins the third uh, little subsection here of this fourth uh, servant song in which Isaiah describes the physical suffering of this messianic figure. He says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not. In other words, he wasn't just going to experience physical suffering. His suffering would also be an emotional suffering, a rejection from people. He's going to be a man who is grieved deeply in his heart. He's going to be a man who knows, uh, who, is, who is close with and intimate with sorrow. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, referring there to the manner of Jesus' death, death by crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Uh, last verse, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on this messianic figure, the iniquity or the sins of all of us. This last verse captures about as good as any verse in the Bible, the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death on the cross. That he went to the cross, he took the hit that you and I deserved. Verse, verse not, 6 tells us that we have all gone astray. Paul says it like this over in Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have several um, home builders here in our church family. One of them was telling me not that long ago that he had this house. It was maybe a week away from handing the keys off to the new homeowner. And things were really dialed in, and they had had the cleaner people come through, and everything was just spotless, perfect. The carpet looked good. The flooring looked good. The countertops were all wiped off. All the windows were clean. They had done everything. They were just a couple of days away from being able to hand off those keys. He said he walked into the house one morning just a couple of days before it was time to hand over the keys, and there tracked right down the carpet in the middle of the living room were muddy red Georgia clay footprints. Ooh. He was not happy. And he was, he was right to not be happy, right? Somebody, one of the guys, had instead of kicking off their shoes like they should have, went tracking through the house um, with their muddy footprints and left those footprints all over that beautiful, pristine new carpet. Friends, that's what sin does to your soul and to mine. When we sin, sin takes what was spotless and pure and blemish-free and marches muddy footprints across our soul. Now, God being a holy God cannot accept this. God cannot allow imperfection into his perfect presence. God cannot allow impurity, the impurity of sin and your life and mine, into his perfect, pure presence. We can scrub on that red clay all we want. And we're here from the South, so we know you don't, you don't win when it comes to red clay, right? You can scrub, you can put all the product on it you want, but at the end of the day, that red clay is stained, and it's there, and it's not coming out. If you're here this morning, and you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, friends, this is how God regards the state of your soul. He looks at you, he looks at the sin in your life, the sin in your heart, the sin on your soul, and says there's a stain there, uh, and you can't do anything to remove it. Um, now, the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant, is God's solution to our sin-stained condition, to our muddy, imperfect souls. Isaiah writes in verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
That is, we have all got this sin-stained condition, every one of us. We have turned everyone his own way. However, God's solution to our sin-stained problem is that the Lord Jesus, or that the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is saying that rather than throw the dirty carpet out, right, which in many cases is what you need to do, right? You just got to throw that dirty carpet out and start all over again. But rather than do that, God came up with a solution, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross when applied to your heart and applied to mine. It is the stain stick of heaven that gets all those sins washed out. It's as this old psalmist said, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It makes us whiter than snow. Again, if you're here today and you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, know that the Lord Jesus wants to scrub your heart clean. All you need do is ask him. Something for you to think about. So Isaiah says that this messianic figure, the Lord's servant, is going to give his life as a substitute for our sin-stained souls. I asked Brian if he would to smush all of these verses together, verses 4, 5, and 6, and put them all together so we could see how many times the words us and we and our occur in these verses. Um, these verses are saying something to us and we and our. It's, all, it's referring to all of us. The point is we're all in this same condition together. We have all got this sin-stained condition. What's beautiful is Jesus' death and Jesus' suffering and Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice was not a targeted sacrifice, only meant for some people. No. Jesus died for all people. John says it this way in his gospel, John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, he loved the whole thing, that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him. You say, well, what does the word whosoever mean? The word whosoever means whosoever, right? That's what it means. It means everybody. It means anybody. It means that this offer of forgiveness is open to, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your bank account looks like. God's not looking for any of that stuff. What God cares about is, do you sincerely look to the cross of Christ as the sacrifice, as the substitute for your sins? And so that's what God's looking for. That means you don't have to dress a certain way or look a certain way in order for God to accept you. It means you don't have to belong to a church or jump through some religious hoops. God's offer of forgiveness, friends, is inclusive. It is for whosoever. Now, this concept of the Lord Jesus substituting his life for ours, being pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded, he did all of that so that we would not have to. Basically, Jesus took the hit. He substituted himself for your life and for mine. This concept of sacrificing oneself, a substitute for one life for another, runs all through the Old Testament. For example, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, Genesis 3 and verse 21, God took the life of an innocent animal and he used that to cover the shame and to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, it says. The idea of substitution was at the forefront when Abraham was about to kill his son Isaac, but the angel of the Lord stopped him and told him, Genesis 22 and verse 13, to stop and kill the ram instead of your son. Or offer a substitute here. The idea of substitution was present at the first Passover when the death angel killed every firstborn child through Egypt, but it passed over the Hebrew homes that had the blood of an innocent lamb sprinkled upon 
the doorpost. Substitution was there at the temple when day after day the priests would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. One day after another, the Day of Atonement, um, Yom Kippur, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. The only difference between those sacrifices and the person of Jesus Christ is that instead of it being the blood of a bull or a goat or a ram, as Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us, instead of that, it was the innocent, sinless blood of Jesus poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. End of verse 6, Isaiah said, The Lord laid on him, on the suffering servant of the Lord, laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus substituted his life on the cross for ours. Jesus received in his physical body the punishment that you and I deserved. Now, there's more here in chapter 53 that points to the life of Christ. For example, in verse 7, he says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth at the trial of the Lord Jesus. Pilate was trying to get him. Hey, don't you realize we're about ready to execute you, to send you off to be killed? Why don't you speak up for yourself? But Jesus just stood there with his mouth closed and let everything play out. Um, verse 9, it says that he, they made a grave with him among the wicked and with a rich man in his death. After Jesus expired on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy guy, went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate granted his request. Matthew 27 and verse 60 reports that Joseph took the body and laid it in his own new tomb. Joseph had carved out a place, this wealthy man had carved out a place for a nice, really pretty, perhaps nice uh, overlook of the, of the hillside or something like that, this really nice um, tomb that he had cut out in the rock. And so he, he instead gave that, that to the, uh, for the body of Jesus, for the resting place of the body of Jesus, fulfilling Isaiah 53 and verse 9. Now, there are more and more and more of these as we go through chapter 53, but, you know, in the interest of time... Um, I'll let you sit down with Isaiah chapter 53 and just read through this. And I mean, it's going to, the stuff will just jump off the page at you as you see the Lord Jesus in the pages of Scripture. What I want to do next is to, clo to close things out is to flip back to that conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The question, what difference does this make to my life? It's a question we ask every week around here. We've kind of answered that, haven't we? We, we have. I mean, all through this, he's talking about the difference that all this makes, that the Lord Jesus paid the sin debt that you and I owe. But there's something even more that this rises out of this text here in Acts chapter 8, and I want for us to take a look at it. So let's flip back over to Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's been reading Isaiah 53, and Philip has been explaining this to him, connecting all the dots between Isaiah 53 and the life of the Lord Jesus. But you'll note Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 30. It says that Philip ran to him and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man's response was this, verse 31, and the Ethiopian man said, how can I unless someone guides me? Friends, I'll be the first one to admit that sharing Christ with someone, with even our own family, is not an easy thing. There are folks who have that spiritual gift and others of us who do not. Nevertheless, Jesus inst instructed all of us, Matthew chapter 28, to go into all the world and share the gospel. That was not a command meant for some. More and more, friends, of the folks outside of these doors, outside of these walls, know less and less about the God of the Bible. Right? 
And that's the world we're living in. We're becoming an increasingly secularized society. I would say a generation ago, there was probably a Bible in every home in America. What would it be today? 50%? Maybe less? I don't know. Um, that's not to speak poorly about anybody. It's just the nature of the increasing secularized society that we live in. Um, despite, my point is this, and I'll close with this, that despite the sweaty, boy, y'all are getting out of here early today. We'll make up for it next week. Despite the sweaty palms, despite the dryness in our mouth that we feel when it comes to one of those moments when, you know what, there's an opening here to share the gospel or to invite somebody to church or to talk to them about my relationship with Jesus. Despite the sweaty palms and the dryness in our mouth, friends, we need to be willing to push through and ask, do you know about the Lord Jesus? Do you know, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And their response, friends, will often be, how can I unless somebody guides me? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us from your word. We thank you for a fresh um, challenge to our lives uh, to go and be your hands and your feet, uh, to go and be your mouthpiece, to explain to a world that lives in ignorance about the things of God, about your, your desire to know us, to be in relationship with us, about what Jesus came to do. Lord, we have the facts. It's in our head. Or may we speak it from our mouth. God, we pray in the week ahead that you would offer us opportunities and we'd be looking to share Jesus Christ, to invite folks to church, to pray with somebody in need, or to be ministers unto a world that's in need. As we gather around this table now, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your shed blood and for your broken body, which makes all of these things possible. Holy Spirit, encourage us as we share in this meal together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.